like if you spend all day trying to be interesting as a person, you know, carousing around and, you know, jumping off of bridges and doing copious amounts of drugs, you know, like you're not going to have time to actually sit down and make the work. And so that that is in the sense that that I was always like, don't be afraid to be boring, because a lot of people think that being an artist is like a lifestyle, you know, that it's like, a, you know, and 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 like the whole way that creative is used as a noun, like, oh, I'm a creative, like it, like it's some kind of lifestyle, you know, when in fact, like it's all about the work and it's all about what you make and, and your verbs, you know? And so, um, that's the, that's the real sense of be boring is like, you you know, you need to take care of yourself and conserve your energy so that you can spend it in your work. You are listening to louder than words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people, you know, I'm John Benini. And I'm your host. Hello there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Louder Than Words. Today, I'm going to skip the usual bullcrap that occurs at the beginning of, uh, I guess, any podcast. Uh, Because (laughs) my guest today is Austin Kleon. He's the author of Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, he was the guy who went viral with newspaper blackouts. You may have seen those on Instagram or Google or any other place that has a visual presence. He has a journal out this month titled The Steal Like an Artist Journal, a notebook for creative kleptomaniacs. So that should be just about all of us. And this thing is its chock full of creative exercises or weird little things that you can gather inspiration from, designed to get your process going so you can make things and steal ideas from everyday life. But that's not why I'm skipping all this stuff today and why I'm excited. I'm getting right to it today because Austin is the reason why I started this podcast. So in uh, it might have been So it's Steve. my fault. It's your fault. Yeah, it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was Steal Like an Artist. You there was something and I'm paraphrasing here, hopefully justly, where you said um you know, there's an old quote that you are what you consume, like what's around you and, you know, find the people or things that inspire you and find out what they consume and sort of go up the ladder that way. And that's what I and many people do with people like Austin, right? You have a, Austin has a great blog where he shares things that he's reading or he has a newsletter that goes out every week that talks about great things he's checked out that you should too. But I realize it's not always easy for people to do that, even with all the platforms, Twitter and all these things that we can connect to the creative inspirations that we all have. It's not always easy to find out the things that sort of make them tick. So I was like, you know, I'm going to start a podcast that's going to focus on, you know, connecting creative people to the people who inspire them to their creative process, to their intricacies, to their shortcomings, to their successes, basically to their life, right? And now today I have Austin here on this podcast, which for me is makes this the most important episode of Louder Than Words so far because it's all come full circle. So if it can for me, then it most definitely can for anybody listening as well. So Austin, I'm sure that made you feel really uncomfortable, but uh, thanks so much for coming on Louder Than Words today and, and bearing with that intro. Dude, I'm I'm super honored and and happy and uh I I think that's awesome. <laughs> good, good. And and you're um you're in the middle of a uh, you you've had extensive book tours in the past, right? This one seemed a little more toned down for the journal, right? But you sounds like you just wrapped up. Yeah, um my 
my publisher workman is still real old school about book tour. And so um, I think we've done like, I think we did like 20 cities for the last two books. And so I have a very small, um, I have small children at home. Uh, my oldest son is three and my youngest son is only six months. So this time around I told him, hey, look, let's cut the tour in half. Let's do 10 cities. And so we're kind of right in the middle of it now, although I just got done with a really long 10-day stretch. Um, I'm doing the West Coast uh, next week, and then I think there's Brooklyn and Denver after that, (laughs) so then we'll be done. You know, tour is really brutal. Um, You know, as someone who talks so much about routine and structuring your days in a way that you can get work done. Um, it's completely impossible to get any real good work done on tour. It just kind of consumes your whole life and it's not worth complaining about because it's a real privilege to get out on the road and like be able to meet all your uh, fans and, and visit these great cities and great bookstores. But um, it does kind of put your creative output on hold and so um you just exist in this as someone who you know so much of my life is about the things that i make um and having new ideas and that kind of thing it's it's you know it's kind of weird to just be on this um i call it like you know being a traveling salesman basically (laughs) (laughs) so basically what you're saying is you could never be keith richards you can never be a rock star Oh, baby, no. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, and it's funny because I was listening to this. Um, I was listening to, it's funny that you mentioned Keith Richards because I was just listening to Mark Maron's interview with him. Oh, I was and, too. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, but I was listening to another interview with, uh, with Brian Eno. And Brian Eno talked about how when Roxy Music really took off, he knew he could never do tour because he said exactly what I just said, which is, you know, he found it impossible to like, you know, he'd bring all these reading, uh, you know, all these books on tour. And like, he would say, I'm going to do all this work. And then he said that that hour and a half of being on stage just like consumed your whole day, you know, and he said he knew right away that like he could not be a traveling musician. It just wouldn't work. And, you know, Keith Richards is someone who I'm like, I, I don't know how those guys did that kind of touring and wrote at the same time. I think they were just so, I think playing in a band is a little bit different in that like you're every night you're actually doing your art. Like that is the Stones art, you know, like playing on stage is the art the Stones do. And like when I get on stage, it's not like that's not my art. That's <laughs> something else, you know. And, and so, Keith, yeah, guys like Keith are, are so improvisational. Like he never plays the same lick twice. So those guys yeah. like to shake it up and cover Muddy Waters and uh, Junior Wells and, you know, forget playing their own songs for a couple for a couple yeah. minutes out of the set list. I guess that's the that's the switch, right? You can't go up there and start reciting lines from um, a talk that uh, you know, <laughs> you know, like Chase I mean, I Jarvis gave or something, you know, or, or Gary Vaynerchuk. I mean, I, I, it's funny. I mean, I, it's like maybe I should turn it into art. I don't know. Maybe it should be like a performance piece. Yeah. I don't know. I, I it's it's like I I mean I get a lot of inspiration from um, I, I I feel like stand up comedians is about the closest art form to what it's like to be out on book tour, you know, and the, the kinds of things I do, except I'm, you know, not as funny, of course, but, um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, 
you know, that idea of having material that you kind of workshop and that you work on on an audience every night, it's it's interesting. Although, you know, a lot of authors don't do the kinds of talks that I do. I mean, a lot of people just show up at a bookstore and they just read like 30 minutes from the book and then they take Q&A and they're done. I mean, my my bookstore, I always want my stuff to be a little bit, for lack of a better word, interactive. And so when you get to see me on book tour, I'm going to do something that you can't just get in the book, you know, like, so this tour is, um, talking about, I have a slideshow of famous notebooks and journals from artists and scientists and people that inspire me and how those notebooks influence this journal. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a show your work situation in that, like, it's all about the process of how the journal was put together, not necessarily just what's in the journal. Because that's what's fascinating to me when I go see writers is like, I want to hear about their process. I want to hear a little bit more about who they are and like how they do their work because I already love their work. You know, I have their books. I don't need them to read from the book necessarily unless they're really brilliant and like, you know, fiction writers or something. Um, you know, I, I've got their book. I don't need them to read from it. I just want to hear from them directly. And so that's kind of influenced the way that I do my book tour gigs. For sure. And, and I'm actually flipping through the journal right now. And I know some people probably say that, but I, I actually am flipping through the journal. And, I, and one of the, I think one of my favorite ones so far is you have this page in here. And basically, this is a journal, like I mentioned earlier, for those listening, that um, is a way to sort of get your creative juices flowing, uh, look around everyday life and find ideas to steal from that you can later come back to and make into your own and create. Um, and there's a page in here that says, if you're a barista, um, start <laughs> tip jar wars to maximize your tips. And there's uh, an image of two mason jars next to each other that say Biggie and Tupac. And then there's <laughs> eight mason jars paired together that you can write your own. So like immediately I thought of like, you know, being from the Northeast, the Yankees, Red Sox. Right. If, if you put that out during a, a big series, you know, you're going to maximize your profits. So I'm looking through this book, right? And I'm like, this had to have been a lot more involved and a lot harder to write than like steal like an artist was. I mean, how was this to put together as opposed to the books that you've, that you've written? Was it, obviously it was different, but was it harder? Was this more blood, sweat and tears? Because this is like your process right here jarred up. Yeah. I I mean, it was, it was, um, it was more fun than I thought it was going to be. I mean, when it's weird because you know, people have always asked me about my notebooks. Notebooks have always been the core of what I do. It's like where all my ideas start. And like, I've always kept, I've kept a notebook since I was like in middle school. And, you know, it's always been kind of at the heart of my process. Um, and people have always asked me like, oh, well, what kind of notebook do you use? Do you use a moleskin? Do you use this? Blah, 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 field notes, you know, whatever. And so there's that kind of need, you know, out there that's like, okay, well, people are obviously interested in what kind of notebook I use. But then my publisher workman was very much like, what could we, we know you're not ready to do a new book yet, but like what kind of projects could we work on that would be fun kind of, um, you know, auxiliary things to these books and and the idea of a journal was raised and I got very um snooty about it. I was like, you know, I don't really <laughs> want to do that. That's not a real book. Like, why would I waste my time? Um but then we, you know, we talked about it some more and I was like, all right, let's go for it. Um and then it quickly became one of my favorite projects because um 
it was so much. One cool thing about the book was trying to, you know, I was able to be somewhat random in that, like, oh, this is a good idea. Let's throw this in here. But then also to try to come up with some kind of coherent, you know, flow. And, and I'm not going to say there's a narrative in the book, but there's definitely, we tried to, you know, a, a lot of it happened in the editing. You know, because we made like, a, I don't know, 150, 200 prompts or something. And then we pared down to like, I think 100 or 125 or something like that. And um, then the fun became like, how can we arrange these things um, in terms of, uh, can we make it flow somehow? So like, you know, it's easier in the beginning and then it takes more like, you know, input at the end. How can we sequence it so that people don't get bored with it? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it's funny, like the the Biggie Tupac uh, tip jar thing that you mentioned, that was actually something that I saw uh, out in the world. I, I saw these baristas doing that, and I thought, this is so brilliant. Because immediately, I mean, I, I'm sure... I'm sure they made more tips that way because they turned it into this kind of game, you know, and, and I thought it was just so brilliant and it was funny. And I thought, well, you know, this is really because part of my project is overall is to get people thinking about creativity outside of just art, you know, to think about creativity as a tool to solve a problem or to put something new in the world or you know, and, and in that case, I thought, what a creative solution to the problem of how to get more tips, you know, um, and, and, and it was funny because there was one really early review that this guy was like super snooty about it and like, was like, oh, you know, you know, he's like, what, what does this teach us about creativity at all? And, you know, he pointed out how many pages were about like doodling or just these things that don't seem very serious. And, and that's, <laughs> the thing is, is like so much of accessing that creative mind is about not being serious, you know, and it's about not uh, being so uptight and about loosening up and letting yourself go and, and diving, you know, into that kind of playful uh, subconscious, you know. Yeah, creativity it's, is messy. It's, it's, of course, it's not something yeah. that could be taught out of a textbook in, in, in college. So, yeah. And, you know, I wanted in the book, I did not want there to be explanations of why you were doing something, you know, like, cause, cause I'm, you know, I think that guy, that reviewer, his problem was like, why would you do this? And I was just like, if you pick up this journal, you're going to have to trust me. You know, you're going to have to trust <laughs> me that these things are, will get your mind limbered up, you know, just, and it, it, cause I did not want to bog down the journal and like, well, this is what you're going to learn from this exercise. You know, <laughs> I wanted it to just be, and I also wanted it to be like a cool book that people just filled out, you know, that, the, that it was like a journal that I didn't lead them, you know, the prompts were there for them to give them ideas, but then I'm not going to hold their hand the whole time. I mean, it's their journal. They get to make it what they want. I think the most important thing too that this can hopefully help people work out on their own is it's not the brand of the journal, it's not the type of pen you use. It's, you know, whatever helps you feel most creative and puts you in that space. But I think the contents of this is what's important and I'm sure you have, you know, I've seen pictures, you have tons of journals, you, you catalog them too and, you know, 
I would, I would assume they contain lots of things like this. And, and for those listening, it's, it's not about, you know, it could be a moleskin. It could be a, a, a mead notebook. I mean, I don't, I don't think it matters. It's whatever gets you in that space and, and, and the contents that like doing exercises like this. But I mean, you, you catalog all of your journals and and put the the dates or the months or the years on them. Um, do you ever, do you ever go back to those? Um, I do. Um, and this has been a really interesting point of discussion on tour. Um, you know, uh, the point I try to make is, um, uh, you know, there's a great, um, there's a great tagline that the notebook company field notes uses for their notebooks. And it is, I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. Um, and, and there's, you know, I think when a notebook is most helpful, notebooks are wonderful um, record-keeping devices, and they're great like kind of external memories. But I think what's most valuable about a notebook is when you're engaged with it, when you're kind of solving a problem, or you're coming up with an idea as you're working. And so um, when I go back through my notebooks, uh, I do find good ideas every once in a while, but... It's mostly an exercise in nostalgia and in being like, oh, I remember what it was like when I was working on that. And like, um, oh, you know, like uh, it's also can be somewhat depressing once in a while in that I realize how often I have to circle around an idea until I actually accept it and embrace it and can feel its execution. Like I'll have, I'll be like, you know, over the course of several years, I'll have the same idea, but it'll take me a while to actually do something with it, you know? And so you'll be flipping back through a notebook and you'll, you you know, you'll just finish some project and you'll be feeling so original and new. And then you flip back through one of your notebooks and you're like, Oh, I had that idea three years ago and I'm only now doing something (laughs) with it, you know, but, um, I think what's, you know, the most powerful thing about the notebook is, is actually that process of using it and, and seeing it as a space in which to work out what you're trying to work out. Yeah, I would agree with that. And you have, um, you know, you have, uh, what, what looks to be a really creative space too, from what you, you post as far as office space is concerned. Uh, and it, and don't you have two desks as well? Like one's like analog and one is digital or, or did I just make that up? Uh, yeah. Um, so I, years ago, um, I, uh, I was reading an interview with a guy named, uh, uh, Art Spiegelman, who's a cartoonist and he wrote the book Mouse. Um, and uh, he was talking, they were describing his studio, and he doesn't have just one workspace. Basically, how they were describing his studio was that he basically had like 12 battle stations in his in his workspace. There was like there was like a different desk for everything. So there was a desk for sketching. There was a desk for scanning. There was a desk for painting. There was a desk for his computer. And they were talking about how, you know, he makes cartoons. So there's so much process involved uh, between going back and forth between analog tools and digital tools and his work. And he was talking about how there really isn't any original for his comics because it's all this weird mix of like, you know, sketches and finished paintings and then digital work. And I just got very interested in this idea of having different desks for different kinds of work. And, but of course, like, 
I don't have the studio to have 12 desks in. <laughs> and so I kind of sim- I simplified and I made what I call my analog desk and my digital desk. And the analog desk is very uh, simple. It's it, it, you, just nothing electronic is allowed on it, nothing digital. It's just all paper, pens, and scissors, tape, analog tools. And um, and then my other desk has is where I'm sitting now. It's got like my computer and my nice podcast mic and my scanner and all that good stuff. And a lot of my work now is a dance in between those desks, just like Art Spiegelman, in that a lot of the ideas are actually born at the analog desk. And then I'll switch over to the computer and kind of execute them. And then I'll go back and forth between the two. But I think it's really important. Um, It's kind of a little idea that I put in Steel Like an Artist that I really wasn't thinking about very much. It's just like, yeah, this is kind of how I work. And people like really took to it. And so I've seen like over the years people starting their own analog desks in their office. And that's been really cool for me. And I think one of the things I learned about that is that we're – as a so many of us, we're craving that kind of hands-on time because so much of the work that we do is at our computer. And the thing I love about analog tools is that um, it's not necessarily even that they're better, although I do think that they're better at certain things, but that they they only do one thing and they do one thing well. And so, for example, like a pencil only does one thing, it writes, you know, and, and and like a pencil and a piece of paper, there's only like one thing that you really do there. Whereas if you sit at your computer and you start typing, like there's a million other things your computer can do. Like it can interrupt you, like you could get a text, <laughs> you know, you could get a Facebook message, you could get a notification from your email, you could surf pornography, you know, there's just like a, there's like a million other things that you can do with that tool. And and I like how simple analog tools are. And so now, you know, people have asked me, like, why on earth in the year 2015 would you put out a paper journal? And my response is just that, you know, a journal is this, it's sometimes people think about paper and they don't realize that paper is a technology, that like, it's just not a digital technology, but, you know, how many years ago paper was a new technology and it's a great technology and when you open a paper notebook, it's not going to talk back at you. You know, there's not going to be any of those Facebook notifications. Or, you know, um, it's not going to talk back at you and it's not going to distract you. It's almost like a walled garden that you can kind of walk into and just be alone with your thoughts. And that's what I love about it. And for you baristas following along at home, you can have a digital <laughs> analog tip jar and maybe raise your tips. Who knows? And it's a good point, too, about like there's, there's just something different about working with your hands, working with analog tools. So you mentioned your, your sons earlier. I'm actually expecting uh, my first uh, son. Oh, wow. Uh, Congratulations. In, thank you. In, in January. And so I've been busy like putting together things, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, things like some uh, art in his room, pictures, obviously the crib, which was a, a hell of a good time. Um, <laughs> but there's, I find myself really thoroughly enjoying it because all day long I work in an analog space and I get to create and mess up and problem solve with my hand. And it's, there's just, it's a completely different experience. And I, I keep a journal on my desk all day. And sometimes some of my coworkers will laugh because we'll be on a call and instead of typing the notes in like, I don't know, Evernote or something, I'll be sitting there with my, my Sharpie and my journal and sketching out ideas. And it's just, 
it's just I don't know it 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 just works more effectively uh, for me. It's yeah. I mean, my friend Clive Thompson did this wonderful talk, and it's online. Um, if you you could search my Tumblr um, for for Clive Thompson, but you know, Clive did a talk in which he had done research and or he was reporting on research that had been done, and they said exactly what you have already intuited that actually. Uh, taking notes by hand when you're trying to synthesize information, like when you're listening to information and you're trying to like synthesize it and getting it into a format that you can do something with, uh, analog tools are better. So like using a pen and a piece of paper when you're taking notes, that forces you to kind of filter and simplify and, and synthesize. Um, now, when it's best to use the keyboard is when you're trying to actually produce writing that someone else will read. And so like the great thing about, so there's all this research that shows that if you, um, if you make kids better typists, they become better writers because they can keep up with their thoughts. And so again, I love this idea of different, you know, different kinds of um, tools for different kinds of output. And again, I think that's like what journals are so good for. They're great for synthesizing information, for getting information on a page and then coming up with some sort of form for it that you can then see the idea and then go off and do something with it. Are you familiar with Sonny Brown, The Doodle Revolution? Yeah, I'm a friend of Sonny's. Um, and Sonny lives in my Sonny lives in Austin too. And and that's a great a lot of the research that she's done on doodling um matches up really well with my own. And um I've been mostly inspired. Uh Sonny's work has also echoed um the person that's influenced me the most is is a woman named Linda Berry, who's done a lot of similar research on the power of the hand and the power of doodling and moving a pen across the piece of paper. Yeah, and it's I think the first book that she wrote, Game Storming, I think she co-wrote it, and it's basically about you know getting companies to engage in these kind of activities to increase the output of their teams and you know somebody like her has made you know a career off of teaching other people this you know it's not this isn't just a uh, an idealistic artist thing you know that oh yeah this is there's studies behind this this is actually like like you said for digesting information and synthesize there is no better way than than the journal and the pen and using totally your yeah. yeah and 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 Sonny and I uh years ago we taught together, um, and one of the authors of, of Game Storming, a guy named Dave Gray, who's also a brilliant guy, um, we taught a visual note-taking course together at South by Southwest um, in like 2010. And, um, and that was before, um, I think that was the year my book Newspaper Blackout came out. So Steel wasn't out yet. And, and, it, and to see that idea of taking notes by hand in a visual format you know, things just kind of exploded from that point. And now when you go to South by Southwest, there's actually people who are there and they capture ideas in visual form. Um, and the only thing that I got, um, the only thing I got kind of jaded about that thing was that I actually think that that process is better if you're the one doing it. I'm not sure that like, you know, I think that visual notes are best for I think notes are always best for the person who actually takes them. You oh, know, that's yeah. 
that's the person who learns the most. I'm always kind of a little bit skeptical about the value of, although I will say that when people see those done in real time, it does help them visualize the material and, and what's going on. Um, and so it's, it's really a cool thing. And conferences have started, uh, you know, hiring these people to come out and um, actually synthesize yeah. the talks. And I was at Which, one recently where yeah. everyone was watching the guy that was yeah, within exactly, ice, and they were not watching the speaker. <laughs> exactly. But I think to your point, they probably took a lot yeah. from that. They, they probably did. And for me, as someone who like puts a lot of um, thought into how to have, you know, slides that visually convey the information that I'm talking about, it's kind of distracting. So it's really funny when someone does a, a um, when someone does a sketch note or a, a thing of my talks, it's like, yeah, those were my slides because <laughs> like all the all the <laughs> concepts are already visualized on slides most of the time. You know, it's just kind of funny how, but but it's true. Like a lot of speakers don't have, you know, because a lot of people who talk they don't have that visual mind necessarily, and not that they don't have it, but they don't use it as much in their presentations. And so um, I think, hey, whatever whatever can help get the ideas across to people. It's a good thing. Next time, just ditch the slides, hire one of those guys yourself and have them stand behind you and <laughs> put a camera on them. And there you go. Yeah. Like people probably get so much more. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw, um, um, I mean, last tour I actually drew live. And so while I was talking, I was doing almost one of those sketch notes. Oh, even better. Um, and what I, I actually, something I would like to attempt, I haven't figured out what talk to do it for is, um, some of the software, some of the drawing software for the iPad has gotten amazingly good. Um, there's a there's a piece of software called um, Paper now for the iPad. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. It, it's so intuitive and fun to use, and I think it would be really fun to do a talk where, um, and I. I someone's going to steal this idea from me, which is fine. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I would love to be able to do one of those real time as I was telling the story or doing the talk. And then everyone who went to the talk could have a copy of it at the end. Like you would get this takeaway. I don't know how you would do it, whether you just email it to everyone or if everyone would get like a, a printout of it at the end. But it would be so cool to create one of those maps in front of people and then they get that's their takeaway, you know, at the yeah. end. That would that, be really cool. That would be very engaging, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I and I also, one of the things I want to do is I want to do a little, um, I'm really into what Questlove calls, uh, Questlove, the drummer for The Roots, he, he took that David Letterman stupid human tricks um, <laughs> segment and he said, every band needs a stupid human trick, like some kind of like hook that people remember and, so I'm always trying to think of stupid human tricks to do on stage. Like I've always wanted to make a blackout live in front of an audience. And so, um, <laughs> you know, I'm always thinking of, of I, I get very into the showmanship aspect of, of talks because I feel like if you're going to go ahead and get up in front of an audience, you might as well at least treat it like show business. And you might as well give them a show and give them something that's like dynamic audio visually and, and that kind of thing. Newspaper, how did you, so this is sort of like the genesis of the Steel Like an Artist Journal, seeing things in everyday life and finding your angle and creating, making things and, and problem solving. You used to read the newspaper 
and have a black marker nearby. Describe like that first time that you were like, hey, if I black out some of these words and leave just a few of them, I could actually create uh, a narrative within it, like an, a poem or a haiku or like, the, and, and this kind of like took off when you first started doing this and sharing it online, these newspaper blackouts. Um, so like, how did that, how did that start? Well, I mean, it's hard to know in hindsight whether I had seen it done before and just forgot about it. And then because it turns out there's like a 250 year old history of finding poetry in the newspaper. And that's one of my talks that I give is is that talk where, you know, the blackouts kind of take off and then people start like telling me how unoriginal I am and who I'm ripping <laughs> off and, you know, that 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 journey going from thinking that you're doing something original to like, wait a minute, people have been doing this forever, and then switching and saying, well, what did they do? And 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 studying it and then figuring out how do you put your own spin on it, you know? Um, when I first started making those poems, it was out of sheer desperation, really. I mean, it was like, I was right out of college and like, I had just discovered that I probably wasn't a good fiction writer. Um, and I just... I, I had started a blog and one of the things about blogs as everyone knows is like you immediately are like what am I going to fill this with and there were two websites I was obsessed with at the time one of them was Post Secret which is Frank Warren's website where people email him postcards with their secrets on them that was the first blog I ever saw that was primarily made up of visual material like that he primarily just had pictures on his site that it's this sounds insane in the era of Instagram, but you know, in 2005, when people still had like you know, blogspot blogs and like they didn't have a lot of like hosting space and stuff, and Flickr was still kind of new, you know, like that was a big deal to have images on your website, and so that was the first thing that kind of rang my bell, which was like, oh, you can put images on your blog, it can, it's not just writing. And then the second thing that I loved was a site called The Smoking Gun. Um, and what The Smoking Gun does is it's kind of a TMZ-ish type website where they'll take like someone's FBI file. Like I remember seeing John Lennon's FBI file on The Smoking Gun website. And it had this beautiful, it looked interesting. You know, it looked, it looked beautiful. Like it, it was this stark black and white and the way the marker looked so crazy on it. I just loved the way it looked. And so, you know, when you sit down and you make a newspaper blackout, you notice that it actually doesn't look a lot like what mine look like when they're done because I take this whole step of scanning in the computer and making it pure black and white, you know. And, and, and that's what I was going for. I wanted it to look like one of those redacted documents. You know, the joke I make now is that it's like, if the CIA did haiku, like that's, <laughs> but at the time I didn't have anything that pat. And, and, and I really just thought that the, I didn't think, um, and this is something I always like stress over and over to people is like the good idea is you don't know what you're doing. You just, you stumble on something and it feels interesting and you just keep doing it. And so when I was doing the blackouts, they really just seemed like writing exercises. You know, they did not seem serious at all to me. And it was really my wife that was like, you know, this is kind of like a finished piece, right? You should do something with these. And I was like, oh, okay. So I just started putting them on the web. 
And the real weird, tricky truth of the matter is that I'd only really done like a dozen of them. And then I kind of quit for a while. And then a blog called 37 Signals, or well, the, the, the business 37 Signals, um, their blog, uh, they, someone blogged about them. And I got all this traffic. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I should do a few more. And so, like, that whole story is so random in a, in a sense in that, you know, first of all, I didn't know what I was doing, which is, you know, a lot of people think they need to have this great idea and set out and go for it, whereas really you need to be experimenting a lot, trying a lot of different things. Um, and then second of all, like, I kind of let people's interest lead me into making more of the work, which is supposedly a no-no for artists. Like, artists aren't supposed to care what their audience you know, thinks or, or what, you know, they're, they're not supposed to sell out in that way or whatever, right? They're supposed to follow their heart and what they're interested in. But, um, you know, I always broke that rule and, and whatever people responded to, I said, oh, that's interesting. So how could I keep making more of these and make it interesting to me? Sorry, that was kind of long. <laughs> no, not a, and it seems like you've, you've kind of done that a little bit though, because recently I've seen uh, through your Instagram that you've been doing newspaper pop-outs. So basically, for those yeah. for those listening, what he what he does is cuts out little portions of the article, folds them outward, and takes a picture of these popped out sections of an article, um, you know, from the side. Uh, so is this is this a natural level? Is this like a a short like a short term thing? Is this or is this more satisfying for you right now? Like that that because I think those are super cool too. Yeah. So what happened was is um, I. The 10-year anniversary of the poems is, I think it's this year. I think, yeah. So, yeah, so this is, I've been making them for 10 years this month. And I, we went on, va we went on a two-week vacation this summer, and I didn't do anything. I didn't do any, like, no art, nothing really other than scribbling in a journal, which I can't seem to let go of, even on vacation. Um <laughs> And I really was toying with the idea of just stopping, of just quitting. Because one of the things that's happened with the blackouts is that they, other people make them now. And there's this whole army of people who do them that don't even necessarily know that it was kind of me that got specifically the term blackout poetry. Like that, that was kind of my thing. Like they don't even know about me, which I love. Because it's like it's an idea that like exists beyond me, and so um, and again, like there's a long history of doing erasure poetry and doing like all this stuff, but it's just blackout poetry in particular that you know Brian Eno he says like when you give a name to something, it's almost like inventing it, you know, because <laughs> it is true. <laughs> like there are those ideas that like until they have a name that's sticky, that you know they kind of don't catch in a way that, but so. So, like, um, you know, there are people out in the world that are doing these, and it's not necessarily even my thing anymore. It's beyond me. And so I was just very much like, I'm just going to quit. I'm going to do something else. I'm tired. I'm bored. Like, how many more of these could I do? I've been doing them for 10 years, you know? And then I was just, um, I was thinking a lot about, there's a guy named Brian Detmer who does um, what he calls book autopsies where he cuts into big books and makes these beautiful, amazing sculptures out of books. And there's also uh, a woman named Kelly Anderson 
that I have um, befriended recently, and she does all these really brilliant um, artworks and and experiments just using paper. And a lot of it is like paper cutting and, and stuff like that. And so I literally was just thinking, what if I made a blackout with a razor blade instead of a marker? And that's how it began. And then and then as I played with it, I thought, well, you know, really what this is, is it's photography. It kind of seems like a combination of writing and sculpture, but really the finished product is a photograph. Well, what makes a photograph light? You know, I'd studied photography in college way back, and light is the most important thing in photography. And so then I started experimenting with like, okay, well, how, like using a flashlight to kind of like cast shadows and then come up with all these like kind of interesting lighting effects. And so <clears throat> that's kind of what, I mean, that one simple action, just trading the marker for a, an exacto blade and then thinking about the the end product not as the thing itself but as a photograph because so much of what I do is like I take a photo of the work and then it's out in the world and that's how it's delivered it's not in like an art gallery it's like on Instagram or on my blog or that kind of thing and that's just kind of how it happened but um, I think that's what's interesting about making art is just that like it's really when you get bored that the interesting stuff happens like you it's when you think you've exhausted an idea and you're totally bored with it, then it surprises you, and you come up with something else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, and and you actually have um, you actually have something written like that in Steal Like an Artist. Be boring. It's the only way to get work done. Um, and I think maybe I when I first saw that I was like, be boring. You would think that's the opposite of 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 art of creating interesting art. Right. Um, yeah. So like, what what does that mean? But is it is it is it is it basically what you just said? And it's it's that when you're at that point of, you well, know. Well, yeah, it's a couple of things. I mean, it can mean a bunch of things. But, I mean, on the one hand, the, the um, be boring is, is that segment. My, one of my favorite quotes is by uh, Flaubert. And Flaubert said something like, be, vile, uh, um, be boring and bourgeois in your life so that you can be violent and original in your work. And what Flaubert was talking about is like, if you spend all day trying to be this crazy artist person, you will not have enough energy to actually make work that's interesting. Like if you spend all day trying to be interesting as a person, you know, carousing around and, you know, jumping off of bridges and doing copious amounts of drugs, you know, like you're not going to have time to actually sit down and make the work. And so that that is in the sense that that I was always like, don't be afraid to be boring. Because a lot of people think that being an artist is like a lifestyle, you know, that it's like, uh, you know, and, and, and like the whole way that creative is used as a noun, like, oh, I'm a creative, like, it, like it's some kind of lifestyle, you know, when in fact, like, it's all about the work and it's all about what you make and, and your verbs, you know, and so... Um, that's the that's the real sense of be boring is like you you know you need to take care of yourself and conserve your energy so that you can spend it in your work but there's also another thing that i guess i haven't written as much about which is you have to give yourself time to be bored not just boring you have to be okay with being bored i mean we live in this culture now in which you could go all day and never be bored 
Like you, you could, there's always some distraction. There's always some entertainment. I'm the worst offender of this right now. Like, um, a, a plane ride is the best time ever because, you know, it, no one can get to you. Um, like all your communications are shut down and you're stuck in this space for two or three hours or four or five or whatever. It's the perfect time to let yourself be bored and let those ideas from your subconscious kind of trickle up. And if you have a notebook with you, like it's amazing how much work I get done when I'm on a plane. But there's always now that little screen in the back of the seat in front of you, right? And it's got all these movies on there that you haven't seen. And like they've, you know, they've engineered and you have your phone with you and your iPad and your computer. Like there's always an opportunity to not be bored. I mean, we're an entertainment culture. You can plug into the matrix, so to speak, and just always be on and always be uh, entertained. And so there's something about letting yourself be bored and letting um, and letting your hands take over and 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 you know filling the boredom with work instead of just entertainment. If that makes sense, it does. Except for everybody but Hunter S. Thompson, because uh, I think he was probably able to achieve both. <laughs> well, you know, Hunter S. Thompson is interesting because the more you read about him, it's true. I mean, he lived this wild lifestyle. He's also an incredibly disciplined writer. I mean, he did a lot, you know, I mean, he sat down and typed, you know, and so it's, it is that kind of like, well, you know, um, but, but people have written more, you know, we're not all, <laughs> the only thing about, uh, it's kind of like using Picasso as a, an example. It's like, yeah, but you're not Picasso, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but you're not Hunter S. Thompson, you know? I mean, so many people try to emulate him and it really only worked for him. And honestly, I would make the case that it didn't work out for him in the end. He's someone who, you know, in the end, uh, you know, he burned out. He did. And did you, have you uh, heard of the book Gonzo Girl? No. What's that? It's actually, it just came out this summer. So it's by Cheryl De La Pietra. And I think she's actually from Connecticut, which is where I'm from. Okay. And she actually um, assisted Hunter S. Thompson. And like right out of college, it was like one of her first jobs. And basically that job entitled her doing copious amounts of drugs, basically supporting every crazy thing he ever did, like shooting guns in the middle of the day. And so she wrote a quote unquote novel about this quote unquote fictional character Uh um, that was an author, but it's based and she even says it in interviews, it's based all about her time working for Hunter S. Thompson. And wow. after I put this book down, I was like, oh my God, like I, <laughs> how did, the yeah. fact that she's able to tell this story now, like how did anybody get work done in that? Yeah. Um, there was only one Hunter S. Thompson, I guess. I guess. I don't know. It's this never, I, I, you know, there are these people that do, they have this talent and, you know, everyone figures out their own, you know, thing that works. I just think that, you know, usually I try to give advice that, you know, um, and that's always a caveat to my advice is like your mileage may vary, you know, like there's no, there's no advice that works for everyone. But I do think there's advice that's like a little bit more constructive and, uh, and less destructive, you know. Absolutely. And, 
I love how before you mentioned, you know, that I'm sure if you haven't heard it yet about newspaper pop-outs, you probably will eventually, that the idea wasn't original. And it's funny that these people say these things to you. The guy who literally wrote nothing is original in Steel Like an Artist. Um, why? <laughs> but of know? course I hadn't written that yet. Oh, okay. You so know, I mean, uh, I mean when, when people responded to I mean, so much of Steel Like an Artist is based on stuff that I learned um, from having those poems out in the world and discovering, you know, so much. And when I do my talk about that process, it's it's all about, like, uh, you know, finding your creative lineage and figuring out, like, what came before and how important that is and how studying your history and knowing what came before, that gives you more ammo in which you can be... Uh, I would argue, you know, you can approach originality and more so knowing history than by just being ignorant, you know, because that's 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 kind of a myth creatively that if you aren't influenced, then you're going to be more uh, original. And I just don't think it works that way. I think that actually the the fewer influences you have, the more derivative you are. I, I think that actually the more you're influenced and the more influences you throw into your work. Um, the the more uh, you know, the more it takes on. Uh, that's how you find your voice. You know, Billy Collins puts it in the way that you have to emulate about six or eight poets until you discover your own voice, which is like a mashup of all of them. It's like any other recipe, right? The more ingredients that you have in the pot, like it's gonna take on a more unique flavor, right? I mean, yeah, I I think so. I mean, of course, there are also dishes that are like really tasty when really simple, but um, I think that you know uh, the the quote I like is it's like you know you rip off one you rip off one author it's plagiarism if you rip off a hundred it's research. Let's <laughs> love that. That's that's so true. But why are artists so proud and proprietary like they they take pride they wear this originality badge which you know could be to their detriment they you know do yeah. you do you come across obviously you do come across a lot of people that have this and obviously steal like an artist was necessary because of yeah. this thinking um in creative fields um well historically historically art art had nothing to do with being original i mean historically artists were artisans they were people who practiced a craft and they made stuff and they made stuff for a specific purpose so you know you painted a triptych uh for your church that's supposed to you know glorify god or you know it had like a purpose you know and 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 you know you had a patron and someone asked you to paint the ceiling in their church and you're like okay you know <laughs> it's like that was and then you know as um it's it's a unique product, particularly of the Romantic era. That idea of being original kind of came into art and the idea that you were a unique individual. You know, that idea at all that we're unique individuals is actually a, a new idea. That idea that you are like a, a unique soul and that you have something original to say, that's that's actually a fairly new concept in human history. And so a lot of our ideas about originality are kind of left over from like the romantic era. Um, but before that, of course, artists like learned by copying and they learned by, you know, uh, emulating the old masters and stuff like that. And so really our modern, I also think it's a function of capitalism. I think that, 
in our capitalistic society, the way to make money off your art is to, um, you know, copyright it and, and to have something that's uniquely yours that you can then sell to people. And that's just, um, and you know, that a lot of art is actually kind of at odds with, with that kind of capitalism because it just doesn't, a, a lot of work just doesn't work that way. I mean, the way, the way that art is sold is is kind of at odds with how it's made, which is you know artists have always stolen from everyone, and and you're you're constantly being influenced, you know. But I think that the way to make art work in capitalism is to kind of you know you steal from everyone, but then you just try to find your own unique spin on it. You do try to do something that's new, that no one's ever seen before, or there's some variation. You know, but it's just, it's tricky and it has everything to do with, you know, it took me a long time to figure out that like, you know, so much of our, everything is contextual. Everything is culturally contextual and that everything is kind of constructed our way. There is no inherent, like there is nothing in us inherent that's original, that that's just an idea that we have. I mean, even when you think about it on a cellular level, you are you are you're a remix of like your ancestors you know and sure you know your dna of course is unique but like you're made up of everything that came before and a lot of the work too that you're you're talking about you know this uh, this original work too um some of it doesn't ever see the light of day as well and i think you know we've talked a lot about steel like an artist today but maybe kind of neglected show your work a little bit i mean yeah that's for a couple reasons one the journal's out but two steal like an artist at least so far in your book career is like your thriller right so like that's (laughs) that's the record everybody wants to hear not to show your work wasn't great you know sure that that was great but um, well i think the problem with show your work is that steal like an artist is a very um steal like an artist is a book that's very um it's it's a pep talk. It's very much, um, and it's validating for people. A lot of people come up to me and they say, you know, you said things in that book that I had already felt or I was already doing, and it was just liberating to read it in a book. Show Your Work's a different beast in that Show Your Work actually is like, oh, yeah, you remember that book where I told you how to be creative? That's great. But now, like, if you want to actually do something with it, you're going to have to work really hard. And so that's always going to be less popular than the book that's like, everyone, you know, like, you're going to be fine. Like, stick, you know what I mean? Like, still, like, uh, like, show your work is the book that's like, actually, this is hard work and you're going and you might not make it and you have to be okay with the process and that kind of thing, you know? And so, um, but, you know, the big, the big idea behind show your work that kind of meshes up with what we were just talking about, you know, you just said, some a lot of stuff doesn't see the light of day is um show your work is built on the foundation of an idea that I got from Brian Eno which is um Eno talks about how most of our idea about creativity is about this lone genius you know it comes from the romantics this idea that there's this special person that um is kind of like appears at random moments in history and changes the whole culture you know and pushes it forward when in fact there's what um, Brian Eno calls senius, which is a lot of these people that we think about as being these unique, amazing talents, which they are, of course, but they come out of a rich stew, a rich senius, a rich, 
um, scene of people who are all building something together. And you see that a lot when you go see an art show about a particular era. Like I just saw an art show about the um, the era in Germany called the Weimar era. In between World War One and World War Two, there were just all this. There's this explosion in painting. And there's all this interesting work, and there are a couple of names that are really big, like George Gross, Otto Dieks, um, Christian Schad. But then there's all these other people in the show that I've never heard of before, you know. And a lot of their stuff is really good. And that's what happened to Eno. Like he saw these art shows in which he realized, wait a minute, like all these great men with capital letters that we think about, they were part of this scene of people doing really similar work. And they just happened to be the ones that rose above and got noticed, you know. And so that idea that actually that, you know, of genius versus genius, I think is particularly powerful in this age. Because a lot of what people like about my work is not necessarily for my genius. It's for the way I'm trying to create a genius or contribute to a genius. I mean, so much of what I do is not just sharing my own work, but it's sharing the work of others and it's sharing things I've learned and making connections in between things, you know. And so I wanted to write a book. Um, you know, show your work is trying to reframe self-promotion in terms of sharing and in terms of like building that genius and whether it succeeded or not is a different story. Well, and a lot of people who create for a living, they have that, that innate, um, criticism of their own work where it's not ready yet. It's not good enough. Do you, right. do, you do you ever get any of that? Are you immune to that at, at this stage or does, or is it really just about dealing with that and, and, and putting things out? Mm, I think I'm enough of a sociopath that it's never really bothered me. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that uh, I just, um, I, it's never really, to me, I always, I, I was never nervous about sharing my work the way I think some people are because the thing that I figured out very early on is like, what is the worst that could happen? The worst, the, basically, the worst that happens in art is that people see it and they just don't care. Like they just click through and it's no big deal. Like a lot of people are so nervous about putting their work online and it's like, look, if it sucks, no one will care about, it. no one's going to be like, look at this horrible stuff. You know what I mean? No one's going to do that. They're just going to click. They're just going to ignore it. And so the worst thing for the artist is obscurity, you know, it's just, is like not having your work noticed at all. I mean, if you're at the point where people know your work enough to like troll you and tell you how terrible it is, like you actually got their attention, you know what I mean? And so it was always for me a matter of, um, I had nothing to lose. I was like, what do I have to lose? You know, what, what is there to lose by putting my work out there? And of course, you know, I was just doing another interview and I said, you know, there is a certain amount of self-delusion that comes with the job. Like you have to be delusional enough to think that you actually have something worth saying and something that anyone would ever care about. You know, that just kind of comes with it. That comes with the territory. Absolutely. And you, and you, <laughs> and you have the, the, you know, you have this almost, you know, this image and this lifestyle that to those who, who follow you and those who see you, it represents sort of like the pinnacle of like success for a creative, right? You get to autonomously create things that you love for a living. So, yeah. you know, I'm sure you get asked this every single day by fans or people that come out to see you at, 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 at your, at your talks. How did, 
how did you do that? Like, you know, lots of <laughs> well, people would love to do that. So like, you know, obviously you could probably do a, a two hour special on that, but uh, is it I as would, easy as it looks? You know, well, like, there was would, work involved, right? Yeah. I mean, I would push back on that a little bit. I'd say I don't necessarily do what I love all day. I mean, what I love to do is I love to, um, I love art and I love books and I love to sit around and read and I love to, um, you know, particularly with art. I mean, I like to make really weird stuff. And, you know, a lot of my day is not spent doing what I love. A lot of my day is spent researching and, um, you know, figuring out talks, which like, you know, I never started out thinking like, oh, I would love to be a motivational speaker when I grow up. You know, like so much of what I make (laughs) my living off of is like basically motivational speaking. And, you know, the books, I do not consider my books to be artworks. They are, they're books, of course, and they function great as books, but, you know, they're helping other people be creative. They're not necessarily like, artistic expressions. They're, they are tools that people can use to do their own work. I mean, the great, um, the great secret of my life is that there is the way that I was able to, you know, create this life for myself was not necessarily by my own creative expression as in helping other people be creative, you know? And so when people see this kind of, um, this lifestyle, there is a tremendous amount of work that goes into it. But of course, it beats digging a ditch and it beats like, you know, it beats a lot of other jobs I had. Um, but it's a job. And and whenever something is a job, it's a job. And there are things that come with it. You know, I mean, I don't necessarily love being on the road for 10 days straight and not getting to see my sons grow up. You know, I mean, like a lot happens in 10 days when they're this young. You know, I mean, so there's... There are things that people don't see, and there's, of course, in every in every job, there's there's work that people don't see. But you know what I'm trying to do is, I'm trying to keep this career going and help people along, while also helping myself along. Trying to keep you know, but but I would not I would not say that like. Um, I, you know, I, I would not say that I sit around all day doing only things that I love. <laughs> so, but, and, and that's, and I think it's important for me to talk about that, you know, because like when people say, oh, you quit your day job, it's like, well, now I just have another day job. There's this idealistic view of what it really is. And, and like you said, there are still parts of it, you know, recording podcasts at the end of your day probably isn't uh, part of the part of the <laughs> job description of doing things you love right i mean right in- <laughs> yeah when i grow up i want to be on 10 podcasts a week <laughs> no no i mean i but but you know the thing the blessing of my life is that i get to talk about these ideas i mean i do love i do love art and i love books and i love music and i love thinking about you know, I mean, it's weird because creativity was never a word that I was ever interested in until I realized that there's like this genre that people talk about. Cre- I mean, like when I was coming up, it was just like, how do I make better work? I wasn't thinking about creativity because like I being creative and is not an end goal. Like creativity is just a tool. And so it was like, I want to make better poems. And so if there was a way for me to make better poems, I wanted in on it. But I wasn't necessarily thinking about being more creative. All I wanted to do was make better poems. And that's something that I think people should get square with is like, you know, being creative or being a creative, that's a shitty goal. Like that's not 
that's not a goal. Like a goal is I, you know, I do this work and I wish I could come up with more creative solutions in my work. I'm okay, a barista that, and I need more tips. Exactly. Exactly. Like I'm a barista and I need more tips or like as my, you know, my friend Mike says, it's like, you know, uh, being creative is not a goal. Selling pants is a goal, right? Like creativity how do we sell is the vehicle for getting there. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so creativity is just the tool that you use to do something. And, you know, there's, but it, there is also, I mean, there is a very lucrative living to be made by perpetuating that myth that there are, you can just become a creative and just like your whole day is run, you know, do, I'm a creative, you know, <laughs> I mean, sure, it's just yeah. like, so, but, but I, you know, I encourage all your listeners to like stop worrying so much about being creative and really think about your uh, what is what is it that you're trying to do and then how can being more creative help you in that endeavor you know because creativity can help you with anything like no matter what job you're in i mean we all use it um but just getting clear about your goals and what you want is 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 a is a big step and you're a guy too who you share a lot of the things that inspire you and the things that, you know, inspire you to be more creative, like books and movies and, and all those kinds of things through your newsletter. So I wanted to like end kind of lighthearted and, and ask you, like, what's the short list right now for books that you're really into that you would recommend to others? Oh, um, oh man. Uh gosh, I'm trying to read as much as I can. Um, but I'm I'm my reading has taken a real hit. Um I'm I loved, I think, a book that everyone should read. I think one of the most important books I read this year is a book by John Ronson called um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Um, it's all about these people who, like people like Justine Sacco, who, you know, made, she made that bad tweet about, you know, she was going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. You know, that terrible, you know, joke that she made that mm-hmm. then she went on this plane and then it ruined her life. You know, that, that, idea of the mob mentality and how we're just out for blood from people that we don't know now online and just this culture of outrage and and just uh just brutality online i think that that's a really important book um the other book that's really lit my pants on fire is actually from the 90s it's a guy named dave hickey he's an art critic and uh the book's called air guitar and that's a book that um Hickey writes really brilliantly about um, cultural objects and pieces of art and stuff, but he it's almost like a memoir in a weird way. You get to know him through his writing about these objects. I think it's a really brilliant book. Um, and so those are two books that I read this year that I really loved. Um, and in terms of music, uh, well, you, lo- you've quoted Brian Eno a lot. Are you a YouTube oh, yeah. guy? Yeah. Um, uh, oh, n- n- not really. <laughs> I'm not a big YouTube guy. I mean, the stuff that I like that Eno's done is, you know, is more of his work with like Talking Heads or oh, um, yeah. even his own work. I mean, the ambient music and stuff like that. Um, but uh, uh, Eno is one of those artists that's, you know, even if you don't like his work, I find his ideas about the work to be so fascinating and awesome. Um, and uh, I'd love to give a plug for this band that i love right now is a guy as a is a punk band from melbourne in australia called um royal headache uh they have this record called high that's almost like reminds me of like listening to green day when i was 13 it's just so like uh it's just kind of raucous and 
cool and just like really energetic. So that's why I've been playing a lot on tour. And then um, movie wise, I uh, I'm list- I'm so I'm watch. I've never watched the old Buster Keaton silent movies. Um, one thing that's kept me from that is they're on like Netflix and and Amazon right now. But they have these kind of horrible soundtracks that have obviously just been kind of like slapped on there. And so one thing I'm doing on the road is um, I'm watching these old Buster Keaton movies, but I'm playing my own soundtrack. So like I'll listen nice. to uh, I'll listen to like uh, uh, you know like gangster rap over <laughs> like <laughs> over Buster Keaton, or then I'll like switch to a Beethoven quartet, and, and I, so that's that's what I've been doing. <laughs> Silent movies to to Wu Tang Clan. That yeah, should be exactly. something that, that, that that's your oh, next thing so to put fun. out there. Oh, it's so much fun. It's so much fun to take like a silent movie. And and um I was kind of influenced by that um uh Steven Soderbergh on his website. He took um Raiders of the Lost Ark and he made it black and white and then he put his own soundtrack over it to try to get people to see how brilliantly the movie was shot. Um cuz it and I love that idea of kind of remixing and making like these kind of lo-fi experiments with movies, and, like uh, there was also a, a version of Mad Max: Fury Road that came out where someone had made it black and white and taken out all the dialogue, so you just had to look at the picture and listen to the music. I, I love those kinds of like tweaks, you know, and, and even conceptual tweaks. Like I think um, that movie that came out a long time, uh, Black Swan. I think that movie's a lot better if you think about it as a comedy. <laughs> a really dark just, comedy. Yeah, I just love like I just I just love taking a piece of art and and recontextualizing it some way. Um so you look at it differently. I just think that's a really interesting thing and we have the technology now where you can do that really easily. Absolutely. And um I kind of wanted to end with this question. So who is somebody that you've and it might be more than one person, but who is somebody that you've stolen from and learned more from or has taught you more about your job or life than anyone else? Oh, um, um, Linda Berry, uh, the cartoonist Linda Berry. I, I spent, um, I know a guy named Dan Sean who teaches creative writing at Oberlin. And when I was living in Cleveland, he was extremely nice to me and invited me to a few readings at Oberlin. And one of them was Linda Berry. And I got to go to the bar with her after the talk and spending two hours in the bar with her and discovering her work um, changed, changed, changed the way I thought about pretty much my whole uh, artistic output. And, um, and I followed her lead ever since. I think she's, she's, I, I feel like in some ways I'm, I'm one of her disciples from afar or I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a protege who she didn't pick, you know, <laughs> I mean, um, I, that's one of the things I love about, you know, artists and people who put their work into the world. They, they, you can be their student, whether they like it or not, you know? So, um, yeah, she's someone who's changed my life, and I, I really I, I encourage everyone to look up her books, particularly her book uh, "What It um, What It Is," which is one of the most brilliant books on writing and creativity that I've ever read. Well, there you go. We'll end on a recommendation, and you have plenty of those, plenty of those disciples that you probably didn't ask for as well. So, but, <laughs> and 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 hopefully many of which are listening now. Austin, thank you so much for coming to hang out today. As I said, this. 
this really was, you know, the impetus for creating this podcast was based on a lot of things that were that you wrote about and steal like an artist. So I'm I'm glad to get you on here. It feels like it's it's now complete. Not that I'm, <laughs> not that I'm stopping, but it feels like it has its purpose now. So I really appreciate you coming on. I had a great time. Well, I thanks, John. Thank you for having me. I'm 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 thrilled to have been such an influence, and I'm honored to be here. Awesome. And for all of you listening, thank you for coming. And be sure to tune in next time because we'll have more great guests. So long, everyone.